last fall when the first snowfall hit in the mountains, I took my family up for a day to see more. The thing is, when you are four years old, snow is awesome and gloves are these irritating, cumbersome things on your hands. So predictably, my four-year-old did not listen to my warnings and kept taking his gloves off. And I kept saying, son, you're, you're going to get your hands cold. They're going to freeze. We're going to go back to the car. And this day is going to end with all kinds of tears. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. My warning was ignored. The hands got cold. They thawed out. And there were many tears. In a lot of ways, life is sort of like that experience of mine with my son. Because people who've lived longer than we have have picked up all of this experience and all this wisdom from life and have insight into the things that will cause us uh, great joy and satisfaction or great pain and suffering. I think some of us have gained some of that wisdom. Some of us have gained that wisdom uh, the hard way. We've gone and entered into the hard situations. We've learned from them. Maybe we've been heedless of other people's warnings. We've done those things anyway but we've gained some wisdom. And now we look back at other folks maybe who are doing similar things and we're, we're sort of wincing as we anticipate the crash and we're worried about where it's going to go. Well, in our text this morning, John is writing to the churches of Asia Minor with all the wisdom and insight of a 90-year-old apostle pastor who had spent many years with Jesus who had lived with incarnate God and learned the way of life from him. And in this passage, he addresses the churches in Asia Minor with a warning that we are fools to ignore. He talks to them about what true flourishing life is and warns them about what it is not. We're going to walk through 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17 together this morning. And as we do, we'll consider John's warning and the two reasons that he gives for it. And that's our outline this morning. We're going to look at the warning. That's point one. Do not love the world. And then we're going to look at the two reasons. Because, point two, love for this world and love for God are mutually exclusive things. And then point three, because love for this world will kill you. So we're going to jump in right away, point number one, and look at the warning. Do not love the world. Look at what John says in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. It's a blunt warning. Straightforward. Do not love the world or the things in the world. But as you look at this warning, it's important for us to realize that John doesn't think about the world exactly the same way that we do. I think you and I, we think about this world in which we live as just that. It's this material place for our existence, the place where we live, and it's sort of morally neutral. We just make our lives out of it. But that's not exactly what John's referring to. See, when John looks at this world, he's talking about it as the place where Satan rules. He's talking about the world in the words of C.H. Dodd that is the life of human society organized under the power of the evil one. And as such, it's a place not of neutrality, but a place of war. A place where war is waging between the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of his enemy, Satan. C.S. Lewis once wrote this. He said, there is no neutral ground in the universe. 
Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. Christ City, John would agree with that statement. And we know that because of John, uh, 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, where he says this. John says, we know that we're from God. Well, praise him. That's good news. We're, we're from the kingdom of God, of the light and the love and the good stuff. And at the same time, he says, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. John wants you and I to know that there is a war that is being waged in this world for your soul. That's for this reason that John writes, do not love the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. All right, I think that's pretty clear. But while it's clear, we should ask this question. What does that look like exactly? Is John saying that I need to go around in this world making sure that I hate the things of this world? John, I, I hate my coffee, I hate my car, I hate my career. Does holiness and faithful Christian living look like grumpy Christians kind of wearing blinders, being morose and, and hating the things of life? After all, it's pretty hard to separate our existence from the world that we exist in, isn't it? That's tricky. No, that's not it at all. John's not saying that. John knows that God is a creator God who made this world and who made it good. John knows that every perfect gift that we receive in this world is from God to be received with thanksgiving, including coffee and careers and all the other cool things that we have. Now, John's point is do not love the world. His concern is for your heart not to get swept up in the kingdom of Satan versus the kingdom of Christ. He's concerned about our hearts. He wants to know, what is it that you love? So let me ask you, Christ City, what do you love? Is your heart set on Jesus and the things of his kingdom? Or is your heart set on this world and the things of this world? John is keen to warn us that love for this world is dangerous for us. I want to show you that by looking at the first reason John gives us not to love this world. It's our second point. Because love for this world and the love of God are mutually exclusive things. See that with me in verse 15 and 16. You can look at it together with me. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. John says, don't love the world because love for this world and and love for God are mutually exclusive things. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We see something similar said in James chapter 4, verse 4, where James warns his readers that friendship with this world is enmity towards God. And both James and John, I think, are getting this from Jesus, who said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, you cannot serve two masters. Either you're going to love one and hate the other, or you're going to be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. 
You see, God is a God who is at work through Jesus to bring us into relationship with himself, to build his kingdom, to cause us to know his love and his grace and his forgiveness. God is a God who is drawing us into his light out of the darkness of this world. God is a God who is love and light and life and is drawing us into the things that are of him. But the things that are of him and that love and light and life, those are things that are incompatible with this world, with the darkness of sin and hatred and death that exist here. John knows this, and he also knows how concrete this gets. It sounds very abstract, but it gets concrete. We've already seen it in 1 John, in this letter. Because already before this text, in 1 John 2, 9 to 10, John has shown us how practical this is. He says, whoever says he is in the light, whoever says, I know God, I'm part of God's kingdom, what God is doing, I, I know God's love, and yet hates his brother, is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. If anyone loves the world, John says, the love of the Father is not in him. And just in case we're not really following what he's saying, John goes on to explain it a little bit more in verse 16. And there he says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, And the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. See, John is saying that when you love this world and are controlled by its worldly desires, that you become the thing that you love. You're formed to be a certain kind of person, a worldly kind of person. You're conformed to the way that this world works in its evil, in its violence, in its shame and in its sin. But on the other hand, when you love, when you love God and when you do the will of God, loving him and serving him, those desires, they form you to become more and more like him as you imitate him in this world and as you selflessly love others as he has selflessly loved you. See, what you will, what you love will lead you either to become like the Father. What you love will lead you either to become like the Father and participate in the things of the Father, in his love and his light and his life, or like the world that is opposed to him, participating in its darkness and its evil and its violence. In the world that is opposed to the Father, it loves to appeal to your desires. It is after your heart. We must not be naive. John writes about the lust of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. He's talking about these powerful desires within us for the things of this world. And he's warning us, these things are dangerous things that pull us away from life in God towards the life of the world that will lead to destruction. There's another scholar named Robert Yarbrough, and he translates these same Greek words a little differently. He says this. He calls these things what the body hankers for. It's a bit corny, I admit, but it's an interesting expression. What the body hankers for, and the eyes itch to see, and what people toil to acquire. So the world is a place where these desires 
are campaigned for, where every centimeter of your heart is fought over to be drawn away from God and towards the things of this world. I want you to just think about this for a second. Think about the way that this actually works out in our lives. Think about advertisements as one example. Look, Coke doesn't put a list of its ingredients on a billboard to sell its product to you, does it? No, what Coke does is it sells you these beautiful pictures that appeal to your desires of picnics and friendships, of summertime and nostalgia to sell you what it's trying to get you to buy. Or on the other hand, another advertisement that we all know is, is MasterCard. A MasterCard, of course, doesn't give you a blank screen with a list of interest rates. It says, here, look, here's where MasterCard is on the interest rate spectrum. Choose MasterCard. The MasterCard appeals to the things that money can't buy. It draws your heart into seeing something about a picture of a good life, something worthwhile that you long for, and then throws in the additional statement. But for everything else, there's MasterCard. As it appeals to your desires. Or just think about social media for a second and technology that's accessed through your device. Many of us have probably seen the social dilemma at this point uh, in our lives. And we realize now in our modern era that social media and our technology doesn't offer us an objective list of things that are good for us. No, what's happening is that behind the, the face of our devices are teams of engineers who are campaigning, working hard, competing for every moment of your attention appealing to your desires to pull you in to earn money for their shareholders. This is true in almost everything in life, seeking to pull you into participation in the ways of the world versus the ways of God. Your school, your workplace, your career, your friends, your family, your bank account, all of these things are appealing deeply all the time, actively and passively to strong desires within you. Those desires, what the body hankers for, the eyes itch to see, and what people toil to acquire. But giving into these desires, giving into these desires pulls us away from God and towards the world that is opposed to Him. They lead us away from true flourishing life towards a counterfeit. Now, I want to show you a little bit about what this is like uh, through the illustration of the life of King David in the Bible. Because David was appealed to through his desires, and it ended very poorly. I want you to see that. So there came a time in David's life when he began to enjoy the fruit of his hard labor. As his kingdom was expanding, the money was coming in, and he wanted to sit back and enjoy it. The time for, for battle came as, as was happening in that ancient kingdom, in that ancient era. And he decided, I'm going to stay home. I won't go out with my army. I'm going to stay home. I'm going to enjoy the fruits of my labor. And one evening, full of desire for the things of this world, though he had been so full of love for God before, now he'd begun to, to turn away from those things a little bit, to, to love the things and the gifts that God had given him versus God who had given them to him in the first place. As he's sitting back one evening, full of desire for these things, he takes a stroll on his rooftop at sunset. And he sees something exhilarating and compelling and beautiful. As he looks out and, and through the rays of the sun, he sees this gorgeous woman bathing on a rooftop. And his pulse picks up. And he's moved by his passions and his desire. And he sends for her to have her for himself. 
And in that moment, he was acting not out of love of God and others, but out of a love for the world, out of a love for himself. And it seemed like something that was quite private, didn't it? Oh, it's just, just David, this woman. There can't be really any harm in that. But love for the world in David's life, it brought death, not life. Because for David, this one act led first to the murderous death of Bathsheba's husband in order to cover up the adultery. Second, it led to the judgment of God against David's sin. Third, it led to the death of the child who was born from David's adultery. And fourth, it led to the loss of his integrity in the eyes of his own children, as his son Absalom eventually rebelled against David and a coup happened in the kingdom. See, love for God leads to flourishing life. But in his sinful selfishness, David brought evil and oppression into this world as he loved it rather than God. But Christ City, I want you to realize that that is always what happens. That's always what happens when we love this world rather than God. I'm going to show you some examples. First, when we love our material possessions in this life, what happens is that we often neglect to think about the way that our possessions are made and the harm the production of those things might be causing to other people. When we love consumerism, we neglect to think about the businesses in our own neighborhoods. As we seek to buy the things the way that we want them, to have what we need, and not to consider the needs of our neighbors. Second, when we love our pleasure, we tend not to think about the way our pursuits may be hurting others. Directly through things like pornography, as our desires are fulfilled through the suffering of other people. Or even indirectly, through just maybe things that we would think are benign, through my own leisure. But the more I pursue my own leisure, I'm often indifferent to the needs of others around me. Indifferent to the loneliness that I could be helping. Or the suffering of others that I could be serving. Third, when we love our careers and independence and our leisure... We tend to believe children are a nuisance or a liability to flourishing rather than the blessings that God's word calls them. We buy a lie. We believe a lie of the world and it leads to great harm. We opt not to have children, perhaps, or to abort our unborn children or to neglect our children in order to live for the things that we really value. But what's the generational cost of these actions? Untold harm and death come from these things, from our selfishness and our love for this world versus our love and trust of God. And again, here's another example. When we love to be praised by others, we tend to redefine God's definition of flourishing life in ways that require less and less and less repentance from other people. We compromise the truth of his word. It, it feels like love. But it's not love for God. It's love for this world that causes us to become spiritually dead churches that don't 
speak out as salt and light, pointing the way to true flourishing life through forgiveness in Jesus Christ. You see, when we love ourselves in this world, this is the bottom line. We tend to use our power and our resources in our lives to obtain what we want from others at their expense. And we do that, I think, either actively and directly or passively and indirectly. You see, the love of the world is not of the Father. The love of the world will lead you away from him and it will cause you to participate in the kingdom of evil and of darkness and of death rather than his kingdom of light and life and love. John hammers this home in the next verse. I want you to look at our last point together with me. Loving the wrong thing will kill you. You see, John, he's this 90-year-old apostle, and at this point in this letter, he's warning us. He says, we must not love this world because it will kill us. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. And the world is passing away, John says. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Christ City, this world is passing away. Don't set your heart on it. Your life is short. You are a small person in the scope of eternity. And the glory and the pleasure that you live for here in this world, they are incredibly fleeting. I love the way that the psalmist talks about this in Psalm 39. He prays, he says, Oh Lord, make me know my end. Help me to see how limited I am. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Christ City, when we fix our hearts on this world, we will pass away with this world. We will be deceived into thinking that this world is all that there is and we'll heap up wealth for ourselves, not knowing who will gather it or what's going to come of it. And we'll fade away with it, having nothing to look forward to but the judgment of a holy God. I want to remember this myself. I struggle with this. I find the most clarifying thing for me in my life personally is to spend time remembering my frailty and the shortness of my life. I do a lot of time thinking and praying, walking in the graveyard that's next to my office. It's really this clarifying thing to see the short lives and the long lives, to see the tragedy that's described on some of the headstones, and to see time eroding the memories of all of the above. I spend a lot of time there and I do it because I want to remember that my life is short. I want to evaluate my life in the scope of eternity to remember what is it that I am living for, for God or for this world. Just recently, I took a picture of a gravestone that really stood out to me. It was a stone, I'll have the picture up for you here, where it's so eroded, you can't make out any of the words that are on it. As I was looking at this headstone, I was wondering, When was the last time that someone even visited this 
gravestone. Christ City, your glory will fade. No matter the home you end up with, or the car you drive, or the things you purchase, or the experiences you have, or the pleasures you enjoy, you will soon have an eroded gravestone over your head. John says, the world is passing away along with its desires. But there's good news. Because he finishes the second half of that verse this way. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Christ City, what will your life mean 200 years from now? If you're someone who has turned away from the love of this world and is seeking to do God's will, your life will have meaning and joy and life and love for eternity. You will be participating in the eternal kingdom of God, of Jesus, bringing life and flourishing and blessing to others as you live. As you trust in Jesus, as you love God and you love others, that's the will of God he's called you to, to trust in Jesus. To trust his forgiveness for you, to trust his power through you as you love God and live for his glory and for the good of those around you. You see, God's will has been producing eternal fruit in a world of death for millennia. And it all started with Jesus. It started with Jesus because he is so unlike us. Where we capitulate to the desires of this world, Jesus never did. All the way to the cross, Jesus faced brutal desires and temptations to love himself first. To find a shortcut to his joy, to God's kingdom, and to God's victory. And he wept in agony and prayer as he wrestled with those desires in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing that he was about to be crucified. But he was victorious. He entrusted himself to the will of his Father. He said, Not my will, but yours be done. And he was crucified. But Christ said, Think about this. What came of that? That act of obedience to the will of God was the birthplace of life in this world of death. That decisive action on the cross broke the power of sin in the lives of his followers. That one act on the cross brought us forgiveness and reconciliation with God in heaven. And after his death, he was raised and he ascended into heaven to the right hand of the Father and poured out the Holy Spirit on his people so we would be empowered with the life of Jesus. So we would be able to live for the glory of God and the good of others as Jesus himself had lived for the will of God. And since that day, the gospel of Jesus' sacrificial love has been at work in this world, overturning death and bringing life in its place. I want you to consider just one example of this by looking at the words of David Bentley Hart. He's a philosopher and he's writing about the way that the gospel of Jesus fundamentally changed ancient, violent, and oppressive human culture. He writes this, In the light of Christianity's absolute law, of charity. He's talking about this, this law of love through the gospel of God giving himself for us in Jesus. In light of Christianity's absolute law of charity, we came to see what formerly we could not see. The autistic or Down syndrome. The derelict or wretched or broken man or woman who has wasted his or her life away. The homeless, the utterly impoverished, the diseased, 
the mentally ill, the physically disabled, exiles, refugees, fugitives, even criminals and reprobates. To reject, turn away from, or kill any or all of them would be, in a very real sense, the most purely practical of impulses. Christ said, that is the way of the world. That's an extreme statement, but whether directly or indirectly, whether actively or passively, this is the impulse of the world, not to love the vulnerable, but to oppress and hurt and even kill them. To be able, however, to look on the child whom our ancient ancestors would have seen as somehow unwholesome or as a worthless burden and would have abandoned his fate and to see in him or her instead a person worthy of all affection is to be set free from mere elemental existence and from those natural limitations that pre-Christian persons took to be the very definition of reality. And only someone profoundly ignorant of history and of native human inclinations could doubt that it is only as a consequence of the revolutionary force of Christianity within our history that any of us can expect this freedom. Christ City, the gospel of Jesus, selfless love, has been changing this world for 2,000 years. Because of the gospel, the evil and harm of self-love began to be conquered in this world. Because of the gospel, we can have the hope that in Jesus, the one who does the will of God will live forever with him. In conclusion, you might be looking at that, you might be thinking about it and wondering, man, it sounds pretty good. To love like Jesus loved, to be part of the ways of his kingdom versus the ways of this world and its selfishness and harm and evil. That sounds good, but Brent, if I'm honest, I really love the world. So how do I start? Well, if that's you, I'd say to you, it it begins with agreeing with God that what he says about the world is true. It begins with agreeing with God that the things that you love are evil things that are opposed to him. It begins with repentance, with turning away from the world which you have loved and turning to God to trust him in faith, empowered by Jesus to do his will, to love him, But I'd be lying to you if I said that this was going to be easy. Entrusting yourself to obey God's will requires discipline. It's difficult. Things like forgiveness and reconciliation, serving others sacrificially, putting sin to death in your life, or living for the glory of God, those things are tricky things. And often we don't want to do them. We struggle to see the good in them. And we do that, I think, because we have all these finely tuned, finely cultured appetites for the things of the world versus the things of God. So how can our appetites and our desires begin to change then? Christ, they change through the gospel. They change by seeing the grace of God for a sinner like you. As you confess your sin and come into the light, to call your sin what it is and to be met in that place of vulnerability and openness before God, not with hostility and judgment, but with love and acceptance and compassion. 
that will begin to melt your hard heart. Only Jesus can change your appetites and your desires. You need more of him. Christy, I want you to know this. Despite your sin, despite your love of this world, as you confess this and come to God, he loves you. He is for you. He forgives you. He is empowering you for victory to do his will and to seek his glory and the good of others in this world. So this morning, will you come to him? This morning, Jesus is standing with arms open wide saying, come to me. Come to me. Will you take a step of faith then today in obedience to his will to receive his grace? Would you pray with me? Father, we need your help. Father, we all love this world. Father, we struggle. We're not like Jesus. We're tempted and we give in. Father, we confess that to you this morning and we ask for your forgiveness. And we ask that you would show us your love for us in Jesus. That you would win our hearts with your love, with your glory, with your beauty. Lord, give us faith and courage to take a step of obedience today. To take a step of obedience to put sin to death. To pursue your will. Trusting in Jesus. Loving and obeying you. And loving others. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.